On this episode of Tell Me What You Know, we're grabbing the proverbial Toro by the horns and discussing the topic of bullfighting, artistic expression of a region's culture, or barbaric, sadistic torture of animals. You be the judge. Learn about the Spanish fighting bull, the three different acts of a Spanish-style corrida, and the matador and his team that carry out the event. Ole. And then, we're heading out on America's interstate highway system. This group of roads spans more than 40,000 miles and took over 60 years to complete. The longest stretch is I-90, spanning from Boston, Massachusetts to Seattle, Washington. Learn about how these systems are numbered, so if you're ever caught without your phone or a map, you could find your way home. Heads up, take this exit for Tell Me What You Know. What's going on, everybody? Today is Thursday, May 7th, and this is episode three of season two of Tell Me What You Know. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. Nice. It's a nice day out, 65 degrees, sunny. Feels good. And then this weekend, it's going to be like 45. Yeah. We were planning on playing golf. I don't know if we can, I don't really want to play golf in 45 with 20 mile an hour winds. I don't know. I can't do anything to get outside. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put a toboggan on. A this beanie. Is, yeah, it's supposed to be some snowstorm <clears throat> coming through the Northeast. Really? And that's what we get. We just get, you know. It's May. I know. It's supposed May. to be like a record-breaking May snow. I don't like that. We got too much other stuff going on. Times are a-changing. Can 2020 just end already? Let's just go right oh, on to 2021. <laughs> well, let's not waste any more time. Let's just get into today's episode. Let's that's what it. you're all here for anyway. Michael, tell me what you know about bullfighting. Hmm. Spanish. Spain? It, For the most part. Really? Yeah. I oh, thought it was very... I think they, I, they're the only country Iberian, I know. right? Okay. So, All right. Yeah. So maybe some Portugal. A little bit of Southern France. Gotcha. That kind of stuff. Um, never been to a bullfight. No. Been to a rodeo. Not really a bullfight. <laughs> um, I know... What, what, are the, what are the guys called? Um, the matadors. The matadors. That's yeah. it. Um, I know the bulls like red. That's why they have the the red common sash. misconception sash. I thought the reds where they they were going to charge the red. That's so. Well, let's start there. They're actually colorblind. Okay. Uh, the lore is that the red was to hide the the blood. From the okay. Bulls. And now it's from just like a cultural. It's a red cape now, right? Okay. But they're actually colorblind. It's mostly just the movement of the people and that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was to get them to. They hate not red. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go after this red because I hate it. I'm not going to go after your matador. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So that's a common misconception. All right. So what is it? It's a physical contest, obviously, between mm-hmm. humans. So usually it's actually a team. It's not just one matador. Okay. And the bull. And the idea is that the matador tries to subdue, immobilize, or eventually kill the bull. And this is all according to a set of rules or guidelines or commonly... Uh, common cultural expectations right it's not just uh you can't just go in there and stab it with a with a sword and call yourself a matador it's a performance right yeah yeah the most well-known version is spanish bullfighting there's a lot of other types as well but we're really just going to talk about spanish bullfighting um like you mentioned spain so it's iberian spain portugal southern france also now mexico colombia venezuela ecuador peru lots of central and south american mostly south american latin american countries basically Mm -hmm. uh a lot of people see it as a blood sport. It's like not a, you know, people are like, this is way old times. Like, let's get with the, with the, with the now and just stop murdering bulls. Right. Uh, a lot of people see it as cultural expression and art and that kind of thing. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It shows off the culture of a, an as- the cultural aspects of, of a country. Um, 
They use the, a, a special type of, of bull. It's called a Spanish fighting bull. Okay. These are exclusively very on, bred. Very on point with the name. Yeah. Exclusively bred free range on large estates. Okay. Uh, they're selected because of their strength, stamina, energy, and aggression. And they, during their breeding, they rarely encounter humans. Uh, and if they ever do encounter humans, the humans are never on foot. So they're always on horseback. And they're typically like, these are just like extensive ranches, uh, like meadows and forests and that kind of thing, right? Okay. So they're like as, about as organic as you can get. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So these bulls get pulled off these estates, these farms. And put into a ring. And put into a ring. They've never really seen people before. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of the history. It traces its roots back to prehistoric bull worship sacrifices. Okay. Uh, the first ever recorded uh, might be from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the ancient poem from Mesopotamia. There's a thing in there about where they have to fight a bull. Mm. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. I read that every year. <laughs> yeah, right. I remember that one. The great epic. Yeah. Uh, it's linked often to... That kind of got its roots from uh, the Roman, you know, human versus beast type entertainment they would have. Like so gladiators, the, except right. now it's... Yeah. So as the, as the empire spread, it was like instead of gladiator versus gladiator, it was now man versus beast, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of religious festivities or royal weddings were often accompanied by a bullfight. Uh, in medieval Spain, <clears throat> it was reserved for the rich because they were the ones that could afford to raise and train, feed and train these bulls and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And originally they fought them on horseback with a lance. Okay, so kind of like a joust almost, like a... Yeah. Seems, seems almost it was like, like a, night, a night thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. These horses, you'll find out, get killed a lot more often yeah, than bulls do. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, so the Spanish style. <clears throat> Corrida de toros. Corrida de toros. Oh, man, that accent. <laughs> uh, in one of these events, three matadors will fight two bulls each. Okay. Okay. Three bulls, two matadors. No. Other way around. Three matadors. Each matador will fight two bulls. There's six bulls in total. Okay. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And each bull is between four and six years old, and they weigh no less than 1,104 pounds or 1,014 pounds. I can't remember what it was. It was like a bunch of kilograms. (laughs) 1,100. Okay. okay. Yeah. Pretty big bull. Big bull. Yeah. Um, And so, like I said, it's not just the matador, right? He's got his crew. He's got his team. He has six assistants. Two of them are called picadores. Okay. And they're, they're lancers mounted on horseback. They have three banderilleros <laughs> and one mozo de espadas. The mozo de espadas is like a sword page. So I guess he like holds your weapons for you. Okay. So you can be like, give me this other thing. Give me the... Give me this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give me the stabby one. Okay. Yeah. And there are three distinct phases within a bullfight. Uh, they're called tercios, which are thirds. Makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. And each phase is introduced by a bugle sound, which I think is just kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the first third is called the tercio de barras. In this one, the bull is released, and it's kind of uh, the matador kind of like eyes him up and down, gets a feel for how how ferocious he's going to be, gets a feel for what his actions are. If he's like focused on one target, if he's more distracted and kind of all over the place, you get an idea for which horn he favors. Okay. So you can kind of know like where you need to be standing. Uh-huh. Right? Uh huh. Right. He uses his cape to test the bull right he kind of does a little bit several passes that kind of thing this gives him a, a lets him feel feel the bull up basically uh the picadores they enter on horseback the horses now they wear armor uh they didn't used to and so way more horses died than bulls right they would just get disemboweled by the bulls super easily yeah i think i also read that uh 
these horses maybe like are drugged up sometimes, so they don't really know where they are. So like they they can't freak out. That makes somewhat sense. Kind of screwed. Um, yeah. Uh, the picadores, they try their job is they have these little sharp sticks. I don't know if they're like swords or whatever. They're, they're I don't know exactly what a picador is, but uh, that basically means to poke, right? So, mm-hmm. does that they, maybe like draw their attention? Like, you're, come that, over here. Or? They each want to put, uh, they want to put their the swords, their lances into the back of the bull's neck. Mm-hmm. This weakens them. It's the first type of like, the first blood loss of the the bull experiences. Each stage kind of weakens the bull more and more. So in this, with the team aspect, yeah, is this the way it is currently? A bullfight is now. I believe still? so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, the second third. The Tercio de Banderillas. So this is when the banderilleros come in and they try, they each have two sharp barbed sticks and they're trying to put them into like the, the bull's shoulders to weaken them up even more. Mm-hmm. The final is Tercio de Muerte, the death. <laughs> uh, the matador re-enters the ring alone this time. Uh, he's got a smaller cape now and he uses this cloth to entice the bull to charge, draining its energy that kind of stuff. And eventually he tries to land the killing blow between the shoulder blades and through the heart, right? Mm-hmm. With the sword. Hmm. Pretty brutal stuff. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a misconception. I think for me that I thought that the matador was doing all the stabs and it was sort of like he was judged based upon his ability to put enough, you know, the swords in, into the... See, I, I've, I've seen the, the same thing, like, on like online, where it's, like, one guy. Yeah. But maybe he has... Maybe he does more of it in different types of yeah. styles or whatever. Yeah. Um, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm only getting to see the final third. Right. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, that's the Spanish style. One that I wanted to mention, because this is, like, the kind that I maybe would go to. It's called a recorte. And it's more acrobatic. The bull is not injured. There's no, like, you're not trying to hurt the bull at all. Rare, there's, like, rarely bloodshed. I think maybe if the person gets gored, but it's, like, you know, they're jumping over the bulls and trying to, like, do leaps and stuff like that. Some it's parkour. more like a, a circus act mm-hmm. than it is uh, bull murder. Mm-hmm. Do they eat the bull after at the at the wedding or at the festivity? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so like, there's the is it is it inhumane? I I would say yes, probably. I think it's just kind of outdated. It's mm-hmm. like a akin to to cockfighting or dogfighting or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Although mm-hmm. maybe those have less of a cultural aspect to it. I don't know. Um, approximately two hundred fifty thousand bulls are killed each year. Wow! According to the Humane Society International, well, that's a lot of bulls. It's a lot of bulls. Uh, so those opposed to bullfighting say the practice is cowardly. It's a sadistic type of torture for the animal. It's humiliating to the animal. Um, younger generations, not surprisingly, are more anti-bullfighting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of polls in Spain show the majority of the people are against the national pastime. One poll said that 67% of respondents said they are not proud at all of bullfighting being a cultural part of their of their nation, mm-hmm. of their national pastime. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the argument is that it's barbaric and humiliating. For right, the bull, yeah. Those who... I don't know who this person is. He's an English writer. I don't know how he's involved. I'm just assuming he's involved somehow. Alexander Fisk Harrison. <laughs> he says that uh, you have to think about how the bulls live three times longer than, than cattle that are raised for consumption, for slaughter. Mm-hmm. And they live in like these forests and meadows without much human contact. So it's kind of like a nice way of living, I guess. Right. He also says that the adrenaline of the final fight would make it so the bull's probably not suffering that much. <laughs> Because he's <laughs> there's so much adrenaline coursing, I guess. I don't know. Um, 
one thing to note as well, this is super rare, I think, but if the bull shows uh, exceptional skill, it's pardoned and sent yeah. back to the ranch to live out the rest of his life, life basically. Oh. So if it does really well. Yeah. Puts up a good fight. Becomes like a fan favorite. I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he's not walking that well afterwards. I don't know, man. I, I feel like if I went to one of these things, I'd be cheering for the bull. So, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so some famous bullfighters. The famous Spanish knight El Cid. Okay. One of the originals which was, translates to the Lord. He was one of the, the original uh, famous bullfighters. You have Pedro Ponce de Leon. He uh, used to fight bulls blindfolded on horseback. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know how it worked out for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, this was a long time ago. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's not the Ponce de Leon I remember. That's right. He didn't <laughs> discover. Was, was he looking for the fountain of youth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he was doing the opposite. He was trying to get himself killed by yeah. a bull, basically. <laughs> Um, Francisco Romero in 1726 was the first to kind of introduce the, uh, the fight on foot instead of on horseback. Mm-hmm. And then you have Juan Belmonte who is credited with being, uh, with kind of making the modern form of bullfighting what it is considered the greatest bullfighter of all time. He fought in 109, I guess, events in one year. It's kind of a lot. Uh, he was seriously injured 26 times, number of minor other injuries. He was actually, uh, friends with Hemingway. Hmm. And he appeared in, in two of Hemingway's books, Death in the Afternoon and The Sun Also Rises. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I could see Hemingway liking bullfighting a lot. Right. Yeah. A man, a man yeah. on his own. That's right. Or with uh, a team. And I don't even know. I read this, but I'm not sure. It says, uh, I didn't know Hemingway killed himself. But mm-hmm. yeah. Belmonte did, did the same. They both, they both committed suicide, suicide by gunshot. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I guess all that bullfighting caught up to him. Uh the venues, there these bull rings. Um, the largest one is the Plaza de Toros in Mexico City, forty-one over forty-one thousand people. And wow. I guess these things are that's still just a big uh, tourism draw. What are the hazards? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Goring. Yeah. You know what goring is? Like, like the technical by the definition. Yeah. Um, like a impalement of a. I didn't know this. It's a single injury. It's a mix of a wound, a burn, a contusion, and an infection. Oh, God. Yeah. And uh, You were gored. Yeah. And so mm. I just assumed that was like you were impaled. Right? That's what I thought. Yeah. But apparently it's like a burn the... as well from like the friction, I guess, and yeah. an infection from the bull's horn. And doesn't sound good. In Spain, they have special surgeons who are super adept at treating these gore wounds. So it's like a specialized type of medicine, I guess. Hmm. They're, on, they're on site at these events to make sure that if something happens. I... I I don't know how I started down that rabbit hole, but I've looked up some, you know, injuries from from it, and they're brutal. I, there was one link; it was like graphic, and I just didn't click it. I don't want to see. There was one that went through the guy's chin. Yeah. Oh. The, yeah. That guy. That guy. Apparently, I th- if it's the same person, he uh, he lost his left eye. He had, he lost hearing in one ear. He had facial paralysis, and like three years later, he went back into the ring uh, wearing an eye patch, and they call him the pirate now. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, over the past three centuries, 534 professional bullfighters have died in the ring or from injuries sustained in the ring. The last one to die, I believe, was Ivan Fer, uh, Fandino. He was gored on June 17th, 2017. He tripped over his cape, and the bull's horn pierced a number of internal organs, including his lungs. And as he was being taken to the hospital, his final words were, hurry up, I'm dying. Oh. Yeah. So what do you think of all this? Like, do you think if you were in Spain, you would go to a bullfight or uh, like a like what about like a cockfighting thing in like Central America or something? So 
as you as you were talking about it, I was somewhat thinking about that. As you, I mean, it's certainly inhumane. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that are are inhumane. Okay. <laughs> I'm just I I I guess I if I was in Spain, I would want to go do something cultural. But I think once being there and seeing it, I think that might change my opinion. Yeah. Um, I don't really think the one thing that. And this kind of goes towards feelings about hunting and everything. That if if the animal has a chance to fight back, yeah, then does it become more humane? I know that the animal is not choosing to be a f- be it. in this fight, and you're sort of subjecting it to your own sick. Yeah, maybe there's just hand desires. hand to horn combat, no swords. <laughs> yeah. You had to punch the bull. I mean, that, you're gonna the bull is gonna kill you every time if that's the probably. Case. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think I I. I don't have a strong opinion, yeah. really, either way. I think I would probably be on the side of it's inhumane. Mm-hmm. But if I was in Spain, I would kind of have this sense that, hey, this isn't my home. I can go do this right. thing. It's not me. Yeah. So I'll go experience this other culture um, and be like okay with it. But I, again, I think I might see it and, and have yeah. second thoughts. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question earlier, the once the bull is killed, they typically do use it for for, for human consumption. Uh, a lot of times it's also for like pet food, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. So it's not a great end for him, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel the same way. I, I would say for sure I wouldn't do it now, but then I don't know if you're over there and I certainly, I don't, it wouldn't be something that I planned out on my itinerary before the trip. I don't think. Right. Well, how does this factor into for you with like the running of the bulls and you know, I, I again, that can't be great for the bulls either you're still kind of embarrassing them mm-hmm. you're running i mean yeah they're going and <laughs> flicking tourists up into rafters and, and along the street yeah. people die and all this stuff but yeah i don't know the like the statistics of, of what happens if the bulls are injured or that kind of thing yeah it's not what they want to be doing yeah i would assume yeah, <laughs> yeah um, i don't know but it also brings up do you think like rodeos. Yeah. What about like horse racing? I mean, where does, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where does, if they break their legs, they're getting their brains blown out. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's kind of where it is like a sick thing that you're watching this like bloody mutilation of this animal yeah. until it dies. Cause it's not like a quick death, right? I mean, how long now did, did it say how long a typical, no, actually I'm sure that that information is out there. Probably a I couple hours. Know. Yeah. Be interested in that. Um, but again, I I also appreciate the fact appreciate. I about two hours. About two hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like how in the culture the matador is judged based upon how well and how cleanly he kills the bull. Mm-hmm. And so there is this sense that like if you're like a crap matador, it's like it, people realize like oh no you need to do it decisively. Yeah. And cleanly. Right. And um, so I I don't know I I think it is. It is it is inhumane, but I understand the cultural aspect of it. And if they wanted to get rid of it and just have like, to your point, like a more um, watch me do a flip over this flip bowl. over this bull. Yeah. yeah, I think that's just as good. Yeah, well, that's bullfighting. Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. Thanks. Would you ever go run with the bulls, or uh, I mean, if you were in Spain, would you go to one of these? Would I go to a bullfight? Yeah, I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Yeah, you would, can't say until you're offered the opportunity, but I don't. I would say probably no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have any desire to see an animal get stabbed. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even though I'd be, I would be cheering for the bull. I don't really want to see a human get gored either. <laughs> it's 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, either way, it could end up pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the idea would be that maybe the bull gets pardoned. Yeah, the bull's so good, he doesn't even get touched by anything, which yeah. I think is impossible. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, don't, I, I would say no. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Good topic. Thanks. You've got to ask yourself one question Do I feel lucky? So, Michael, one thing I learned this week is that sourdough mm-hmm. uh, is maintained in like a starter. I didn't really realize this, but like. What does that mean? So you have sourdough starter, which is like the yeast uh-huh. that you just maintain, and it's just always growing. And basically, you when you want to make your loaf, yeah. you take some of it, but you leave some of it back, and you give it more flour and water, uh-huh. put that in the fridge, kind of expands a little bit, stays growing, but stays like almost like, I think, stopped. Yeah. And then when you want more, you just open back up the container, make your next loaf. So... Are you making bread? Not yet, but I want to do this. Uh-huh. Um, this woman, Lucille, has been has the oldest batch, supposedly, hundred over 120 years old. Got it from she her goes, mom. And she goes by one name? That's what I know her <laughs> as. <laughs> Lucille. 100-year-old? 120-year-old sourdough Jeez. starter. She says, it's not hard to keep. People have this misconception. Uh, supposedly, her mother passed away, and then it was kept in her refrigerator for um, like most of the year without uh-huh. no one making anything from or whatever. And then she finally went to clean out the, her mom's house, took the sourdough starter, made some pancakes later that day. And it was fine. Sourdough pancakes? I, Lucille. I'm sure oh. she makes other types of bread. Yeah. I just wouldn't think sourdough pancakes. Yeah. It sounds super weird. Yeah. That's what I learned. I did not know anything about that. I've seen people use other types of things to make sourdough, which makes you wonder how sane they are. <laughs> like maybe yeast from their own bodies. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that's gross. Yep, it's not good. It was one of those viral things that went all over the internet like five years ago or something. Oh, I needed yeah. to stop. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't read that. Yeah. Uh, one thing I learned, I learned about the poles of inaccessibility. Hmm. So a pole of inaccessibility is a geographic location that's the most challenging to reach depending on certain criteria, right? So it's usually the most distant place from a shoreline, either over land or over water. The oceanic pole of inaccessibility is called Point Nemo. It's in the South Pacific Ocean, furthest from land. It's over 1,400 nautical miles from the nearest landmass, and it's so remote that sometimes the closest humans are astronauts on the International Space Station. What? Yeah. <laughs> when they're orbiting over yeah, it, they're yeah, the yeah. closest humans there. It's also known as the uh, spacecraft cemetery because a lot of decommissioned spacecrafts and satellites and stuff are crash landed there, deposited there because mm-hmm. it's so far away. It's not going to hit land. It's not going to hit any you know ships going by anything like that. It's like the most remote place. Isn't that crazy? That there's yeah. there's a place on Earth that you might be in space and be the closest person to it. That's wild. Yeah, that's a crazy. <laughs> that's absolutely nuts. Point Nemo. Point Nemo. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Well, do you bunk? Michael, we're getting back on the road. Tell me what you know about the highway system. <laughs> Interstate highway system. Interstate highway system. I know that you can take Interstate 40 from Wilmington, North Carolina to like San Diego, I think. Mm-hmm. Could be true. I'm pretty sure that's true, yeah. yeah. But I don't know exactly what all it goes through. I think it goes through a lot of Texas. 20 goes through a lot of Texas. Okay. 20 goes, from, goes through Atlanta. Probably goes a little bit north of that. Like, we'll get to this, but there's a numbering system yes. for them. And you I know kind of, uh, evens are east-west, odds are north-south. Uh, yes. I believe. 
for interstates, not state highways or anything like that. I think that's different. We'll get we'll get to that too. Um, but yes, that is uh, correct. The maximum speed limit I'm going to guess on any. I don't know if you have this information. I didn't look for the. I mean, we covered a little US. bit about the. Um, I would like say it's 80, 75. 75 or 80. Yeah. Yeah. Places in Texas, you get you can go Arizona. Th- I would imagine there's just straight highways for miles. There is, but I mean Texas. Yeah. West Texas is just anywhere. Nothing. Kansas. Yeah. Any of those nothing. flyover states. Yeah. Um. Tell yeah, I think I've been on a. It's definitely 75. Okay. Um. I think there's an. I think I've been on an 80 or an 85 in Texas. Mm. It's pretty fast. No, oh, because you you when you drove to college or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drove my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, the internet interstate highway system. Um, so in 1900, the ratio of of Americans to cars was 18,000 people for every one car. Yeah. So today it's about one to one. Yeah. Pretty incredible. So the Model T came out in like the early 1900s, 1907 or something. Okay. Um, kind of made it more affordable, right? Mm-hmm. Assembly so, line. Yeah. So by 1927, they stopped making the Model T. They were making other cars, but they had sold 15 million cars in that time period. So a lot more cars on the road. Yeah. But cars need like paved roads and they need gas. They need access to mechanics. They need maps. Like you, sometimes you just go out on the road and you maybe you just get lost for a while and then there wouldn't be a gas station. You'd just be kind of screwed. Yeah. Um, so before there was, it was like kind of like local private companies that were building roads and they had sort of long-term ideas of profits. And I believe the most typical way would be like a toll. Mm-hmm. You pay a toll and then you just pay it off over a long time, but they were really expensive to build. Okay. Um, and they weren't also concrete or asphalt. They were like, um, you know, pressurized, um, pounded dirt, basically. Uh-huh. And so when it rained, that doesn't really matter. It's going right. to become mud anyways. And just over time, ruts and all that stuff. Exactly. Like yeah. w- runoff is just going to ruin the road and all that stuff. Um, so you needed better uh, better roads made out of concrete or asphalt, um, something that, that would hold up. Um, so driving between cities and getting outside of the typical off the beaten path, so to, so to speak, yeah. was called automobiling. You'd be like, and just driving, be like, I'm going to drive up. Go on automobiling. Like, oh, weekend. you're an automobile. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like, yeah, so it was like an adventure. Um, so when they started talking about roads, there were like multiple different interests at play. Uh, there were automobile companies that they wanted to build roads because obviously the more roads there were, the more, the more, more need or the right. more use of a car you'd have. Um, then there was also like suburban developers, think, people thinking I could build houses way out there if you're just going to drive your car and you're going to come into the city. You also had tire manufacturers that had a, a desire. Maybe in some ways they wanted people to go through their tires more so they could produce more. Yeah, of course. Um, and then you had like gas station owners that would, and pretty much, you know, gas station owners and mechanics, like they need to go out there on the roads. Like they want, you know, better systems as well. So... That's why we need roads. And McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> and McDonald's, yeah. All the food, <laughs> yeah. all the food and all that stuff. Exactly. So we need roads. But the question really is, who's going to pay for it? Because you've got a bunch of con- it, it's You've got pros and cons for some of these things. Mm-hmm. So like, for instance, New Jersey and the, the kind of the tri-state area up there, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, Ma- uh, Massachusetts, 
some people would feel like, oh, I'm just going to pay for a road to be built that's going to go from Connecticut to Florida. Or, you know, you're just, I'm taking people through my state and I'm not getting any benefit from it. Why would I pay for that? Yeah. But it's sort of a benefit of too, like if you build up the road, then people will drive through your city, drive through your state and probably get off and spend money. Spend money. Sure. But it's a difficult conundrum to, to, to get by. Yeah. So in 1944, right during the middle of the war, they had the Federal Highway Act. Okay. It designated, laid out a plan for building 40,000 miles of highways, uh, but it didn't fund it. So it was basically just kind of like a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. All right. So World War II finishes. <laughs> we have this idea. We have this idea. Here yeah. you go. Okay. And then, but how do you can pay for it? Uh, I don't know. Seems like a little, not much has changed. <laughs> Very little. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then uh, Eisenhower gets into office and takes him a few years to pass this, but Dwight Eisenhower was like always impressed by the German Autobahn. Okay. And I also read that when he was um, like a corporal in the army, he um, did a, a cross country trek. Like they, they tried to, it took him two months to go across the country in that time. So he, he kind of knew the fact that the, you needed an interstate highway system. And then he saw Germany's and was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, like all the Autobahn and all that stuff. So he was pretty dead set that we needed to do adopt this. So here comes the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. It allocated, I, re I read, I saw multiple numbers, but it's 22 or $25 billion of construction costs. And that would cover 90% of the roads uh, that were funded. The states would pay the other 10%. Mm -hmm. uh, the way you'd pay for this was with a gas tax, yeah. which is still true today. I think right. people maintain roads <clears throat> with, with taxes. Yeah. Um, hasn't gone up since like 1993, which is why the tax. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which even for inflation, like there's basically no money to overhaul roads mm -hmm. and bridges and all that stuff. And our infrastructure is just crumbling. Um, excellent. Yeah. It's great. So yeah, in today's value, 22, um, 22 billion would be about 220 billion in today's dollars. Okay. Sounds like a lot, but it doesn't sound like a lot in comparison to like the stimulus package we just passed or bailing out these other things. And you get a whole interstate road system. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, you get a lot out of that, right. I think. Um, anyways, so there were a couple requirements for a highway. Uh, you had to have at least four lanes. So two going one way, okay. two going the other. I was going to ask, because I never know this. Is that a two lane highway or is that a four lane highway? I think that's considered four lanes. Okay, two a, and two. Two and two. A two-lane highway is one and one? Yes, but okay. but a, but that, I think, goes to what you kind of mentioned earlier about like a route, like a U.S. route, mm -hmm. like a U.S. state road. Like a state highway. Road, a state highway. But an interstate is different than that because okay. of these other requirements. There's no stoplights. Yeah. And there are overpasses and underpasses. Uh -huh. So the idea is like you're never stopping. Once you get on these things, you can just drive. Yep. Um. And so there are like other routes, as you kind of mentioned, there's like US-20. US-20 runs concurrent to I-90. Mm. So again, the, the the naming conventions of the routes, don't worry about it as much. Um, basically like all the, I think the large like I or, or US-10, US-20, these are like um, indicators of like major highway systems, okay. but those are not a part of the interstate highway system. Yeah. Okay. They're blue. Blue and red. 
Yes. Signs. Well, yeah. So the interstate highway signs are red, white, and blue. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like the shield. Mm-hmm. And then uh, whatever state you're in will also have the state. Yeah. Because they paid 10%. Right. Um, so, yeah. So the pros of this this whole system was billed as, hey, this is going to eliminate congestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to replace undesirable areas that look just kind of crappy with like pristine concrete road. Um, nothing, nothing looks good like pristine nothing. concrete. Hey, when it first came out, it Look was at that blacktop. All real nice and white. Yeah. Um, coast to coast travel would be more efficient. Um, it, it would make it. This is what I thought was funny. And then the fourth reason, it'd make it easier to get out of a city in case of an atomic bomb. Mm, it's true. It would. I just found it so so interesting that that was like that's what On put the, it over the edge. Yeah. That was that's what. The, yeah. The the def- that was a factor. Yeah. The national something. defense. Um, argument yeah. and like, oh, if we get invaded, we need a way to move um, men and tanks and stuff around our city. So we need like a whole highway system. Yep. So that was when it was like, well, I don't like people driving down to Florida, mm-hmm. coming through my state. <laughs> like, well, what about if we get invaded? Not in my backyard. That's right. Um, it was highly. It, there was a lot of approval for it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then the implementation started pissing people off, which is of somewhat understandable. Yeah. A lot of eminent domain issues, yeah, yeah. construction issues. A lot of people were being displaced because of it. Um, it also would like divide cities. Like not all of a sudden you kind of had that side that versus the other side, uh, which I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, and it was also trying to come through very busy places. You know, yeah, for the most part you could be out there in the rural parts, but. Sometimes it's like, well, you got to shut down this area. You got to move your home. We got to put in a huge highway system going right through this major city. Like, it wasn't completed in, outside of New Jersey until I think like two years ago. Okay. This was supposed to take 10 years. It took 60. Yeah. Yeah. So. Now, I, I feel like uh, there's one stretch of I 40 between Winston and Asheville that's been under construction for like since I've have memories of being on that road like 25 years yeah well you wonder then if there's something else going on with like why it's always being worked on like why it could never finish oh maybe it's just always like by the time they finish one part they got to go back and do upkeep on the other on like where it started or something yeah maybe maybe it's crazy i just wonder if it's always like a point of contention like always being um kind of used as bait for some other thing that people want like We'll f- we're not going to fund this anymore if you don't fund that. And yeah. it's kind of always just passed around like that. Fun. Yeah. All right. So you kind of mentioned the numbering system. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah, red, white, and blue shield uh, with the I and then the number interstate as well as the, the state that the, the road is in. Mm-hmm. So major interstates have one or two digits, right? Yeah. Odd numbers run north-south. Mm-hmm. Even numbers run east-west. Uh, for the north-south routes... Low numbers begin in the west and increase when you move east. So north, south, so like I-5 is like right <laughs> along the coast. And then I uh, you have 85, it's like the east coast. Right, exactly. 95 as well, I think. Yep. Yep. Um, and then for east-west routes, low numbers begin in the south and head north. Okay. Right? Um, and then there are also, around large cities, you know how there's like, loops so you don't have to drive straight through yeah bypass it's bypass a little uh so these are called circ- circumferential routes okay um and they're designated by a third number 
in front of in front of the so here in DC we've got 395. Yep. So 95 and then 3 it goes around. But if you go down to Richmond, they've got 295. Yep. And I think they even have a 195. So depends on how many major cities you hit. Yeah. In your state only. Ah. So you can have multiple 395s in, in, as you go into the next state up and so on. Gotcha. So it's only for the specific state that you're in. I think it's like 85 and 285 in Atlanta. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Something like that. I looked that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is right. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> uh, but they've also, yeah, they've got, yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the longest, <laughs> largest, and the biggest. Okay. All right. So the longest is I-90. I-90. It goes from Boston to Seattle. Okay. And that is 3,020 miles. Okay. But remember how I kind of said before, there's a difference between the routes and the interstates? How so, can I forget? Right? It was only five <laughs> minutes ago. So Route 20 uh-huh. runs parallel, congruent to... It's not like it's not like you could be on the highway, and maybe in some parts, yeah. and you can like look off and right. see the, the interstate. Um, Route 20 is 3,365 miles, so it's a little bit longer. I think it goes through, obviously it has stoplights and different yeah, things, yeah. but you can drive it if you want to. Right. Um, that is the longest road in the country, okay. not the longest interstate. Route 20. Route 20. Got it. Um, I saw this listed as the widest highway. Uh, is the, the, yeah, do you think, guess where it would be? I want to say like Los Angeles, but oh, man. I'll say LA, Texas, Texas, everything's big on Texas. Right. That's right. The Katy freeway. What accent was that? I don't know. Uh, my Dirk Nowitzki. Okay. <laughs> Classic, uh, famous Dallas person. I, it's always so funny whenever he yeah. like, everything is bigger in Texas. Uh, the Katy Freeway, I-10 west of Houston, yeah, uh, is the widest in the... They, they claim the world. Mm-hmm. I think this might be fact-checked some places, maybe not the case, but it's a very wide highway. 26 lanes in some parts. It's a lot. Jeez. Which actually brings us to this next question. Supposedly, people always talk about, oh, let's, let's improve congestion by widening the highways. Supposedly that doesn't work, and it's com- and it's scientifically proven that just because you have more capacity, the every the capacity will always get filled, and you'll always be in a road. Um, you always be in traffic. Always be in traffic. Hmm. People always complain about this. They keep talking about about widening the, the, the this highway specifically. Yeah, and everyone's like, you're still stuck in traffic. It's still <clears> the same. Yeah, bullshit. Hmm. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, so the most busy is in California. I four hundred five. 405. 405. 374,000 daily daily traffic. Ugh. It's a lot of a lot of cars every day. And the, I mean Jeez. also most busy. So I95 uh-huh. serves um 10% of the landmass in the United States and 40% of the population. So 110 million people access I95 daily. Um I think annually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah. see. I. Yeah, I know that you said 110 million. 110. Okay. Yes, yeah. So 110 million people have access use it, it at, at least like once a year. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it also like transports a ton of like commerce through the Drugs. entire country. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, it was finally completed in 2018. Mm. Just forever. Yeah. Um, 
that was mainly what I have on the interstate highway system. Nice. I thought I had one other idea though that uh, <laughs> have you ever wanted to adopt a highway? <laughs> No. <laughs> so you can adopt highways, Does right? That mean like, you just go pick up trash on the side of the road? You maintain it. Uh-huh. And in exchange, you uh, you get to name it. Like your your name gets put on the mile markers. And you just, it's like one mile of a highway you yeah. adopt? Yeah. And the chance. So uh, you remember that Seinfeld episode with Kramer? <laughs> yes. But what if, what if it could be the tell me what you know highway? Yeah. Where it would, it would depend on the, the real estate. We'll make it I don't sure want it to be like in we'll make Salinas, sure Kansas. So, oh yeah, it'll be fifty miles from here. Yeah, you know, we'll look into it. Tell me what you know. <laughs> How often How do we you have grow to clean your it? podcast? <laughs> oh, we bought a freeway. Oh yeah, we maintain a freeway. Put it on my LinkedIn highway. Highway owner. Highway owner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically, any organization can do it. Yeah. Uh, surprise, surprise. There have been like the Ku Klux Klan had one, and mm. people in Missouri was like. Uh, you know, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. So there's also like, um, yeah, there's like gay and lesbian groups. Let's do creates the, uproars for the people. An, the and... Antifa mile. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was funny about this. Too. What's your favorite highway? <laughs> I was going to th- think about that. I 10, baby. What's the deal with Route 66? That's <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, To make jeans? Basically. <laughs> Yeah. All right. I actually didn't look up Route 66. I should have. Yeah. And then uh, I like Highway 1. Go through Big Sur. Yeah. The only time I tried to drive Highway 1, uh, a part of the road had fallen into the Pacific Ocean. We had to go around, go up on the interior of the mountains there in California. Route 0.95. It sucked. I mean, it, it only sucked because we missed out on what we wanted to do. Right. It was and actually you got a nice drive. You got to drive even well, further. And we had to go back. Back, yeah. Because we got in. And they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, it's closed. Yeah, you got to turn around. I was like, okay, so I have to go back an hour and a half to yeah. get on the other road. I think that's a common thing that's happened to people. We did pass a place called Hidden Valley Ranch, which I was wondering if that's where, <laughs> <laughs> where you can get some, some dressing. Mm, well, yeah. maybe. Excellent. Well, that's Highway Systems. Hope, right. you, hope you learned a little bit. I did. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Make sure to like and subscribe if you enjoyed it. You can follow us on Instagram at TMWYK underscore podcast and on Twitter at TMWYK pod. Have a great weekend and we'll see all you beautiful people for a new episode next Friday. Bye.